Hello and welcome to this week's Talking Flutes Extra podcast where as you can possibly hear I'm on the road in London. I've just arrived at a London train station and where today I'll be meeting one of the busiest flute players I know, the lovely Stephen Clark. The question is, shall I take the tube or shall I walk? 10 minutes on the tube or 30 minutes plus walking? <laughs> it's not really a choice really is it and not the most important issue in my life but uh, let's have a go I'll toss a coin and see heads tube tails walk so now the thing has got to find a coin haven't I there we go. it's a pound coin and I throw it up tails oh good it means I'm walking never mind lovely walk in London on I'm not sure if it's going to rain or not but uh, what I can tell you is it's quite windy as I walk out good old tails always sure that uh, sometimes tails is good for me if I toss the coin but this time obviously not <laughs> so as I come out of Charing Cross station I walk across the road and in front of me is the beautiful St Martin's in the field church uh, home of the wonderful Academy of St Martin's in the Field Orchestra and opposite is the National Portrait Gallery and to the side National Gallery and Trafalgar Square because as you can probably see I'm walking quite fast because uh, I'm due to meet Stephen in 20 minutes and uh, normally it's a good 30-35 minute walk so my legs are moving doubly fast today in front of me I have English National Opera and as I walk across the road Leicester Square because not many people realise when you come to London yes we have the most phenomenal tube network a system of underground tubes and tunnels where trains run and take you from one place to another but London is remarkably accessible on foot and most of the time when I come into London I never use the tube, I always walk. It's a beautiful city and with so many sights to see on the road as you walk along. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to huff and puff a bit now. I think you're doing yourself an injustice if you miss them all by catching the tube. But that's me, I just like walking. Okay, as I continue to walk up, we have the obligatory siren, which you hear in most cities nowadays. And what is it? That's a. I can't see yet, I can just hear it. Um, to the right, you have. That's uh, a police car. To the right, you have a small road that leads you down to Covent Garden. On the left, we have Leicester Square, and 100 metres beyond that you have Piccadilly Circus and the start of London shopping district which is Regent Street which leads up to Oxford Street but I'm not going that way I'm just crossing straight over I'm going to walk up, up a really long road called Tottenham Court Road where I am aiming to the London specialist flute shop All Flutes Plus where I'll be meeting with Stephen when we'll be talking all things flutes what persuaded him or what drew him to the flute at the start and really chatting about his I mean he's still such a young chap his busy career which 
has taken him to far more countries playing the flute than I've ever been as a tourist. So I'll catch you again in a minute. I'm currently walking along Tottenham Court Road, which for London, it's a very long and straight road that goes straight from the centre, sort of Covent Garden-ish, uh, Cross Road area, straight up to the north, sort of northern stations, which is Euston Station, and to the right of that, a bit further down the road, King's Cross and St Pancras, where you can get off and uh, travel to France and Holland. But anyway, this isn't a, I'm very aware, this isn't a touristy podcast. Uh, and the reason why I've cut back in now is in, I've been going about 15 minutes now, I'm not far from all flutes plus, and one thing that you never short of in London is coffee shops. We have hundreds, probably thousands. Um, I'm not one for the great big multiples, international brands, but we have lots of little small coffee places. And uh, even though I'm due to meet Stephen in five minutes, my one great weakness in life is coffee. The black caffeinated stuff. And so I've just deviated off because there's this beautiful coffee place that I go to, which I'll just need to get a quick fix before I start the new, the actual podcast. <laughs> yeah, the, the, oh, I think we're on, Stephen. I think we're on. I finally made it up to All Flutes Plus, and we're downstairs in the Warren room, which is their sort of performance testing room. I'm sat with the lovely guy that is Stephen Clark. Yay! Hey, JP. How are you? How are you, JP? Well, I'm, I'm alive. We just had a funny moment because I was in Starbucks across the road waiting for you and you were one door down in prayer, <laughs> both having coffees in different different shops. We were. Um, I did ask you if you wanted one and I think you're embarrassed to reply that you were... No, I, I read your text message as, would you like to bring me a coffee? So my response was, yeah, sure, I can bring you a coffee. That'd Which is my silly reading, I read That'd it wrong. be very presumptuous, wouldn't it? <laughs> Now, Stephen, it's about time we got together with you. I know, we've spoken about this for a while. We have, and the last time we spoke was on your own, your own podcast channel. Yeah, we were lucky to have you on as a guest. That was, that was our last episode, which was a while ago, actually. That was great fun, because it's so laid back doing stuff with you and I, Rick. Yeah, I mean, I love your podcast because it's very fun and laid back. And there's so many good flute podcasts, and they're all very different because they have their own characters. Some are very serious. Yours is very light-hearted. Ours is kind of like mad. Yeah, it takes it perhaps to a little of, of an extreme. Do you have? Do you drink in wine whilst you're having it? We did an episode where we, because most of the time, Eric is in Norway and I'm in the UK or wherever. But there was one episode where we were both in the room at the same time in Norway. So we thought, let's have a glass of wine as we do this. But the problem is, of course, as we talk and we have more glasses of wine we become too honest, perhaps, and certain things couldn't be published <laughs> online. <laughs> Certainly in the flute world, because obviously you're talking flutes, aren't you? Of course we were, <laughs> and you know, like this is our careers at the end of the day, and we don't want to kill our careers, so we have to be well-behaved. Uh, well, well-behaved, is that a possibility? Well, there's a, there's a fine line, isn't there, <laughs> between honest and fun and well-behaved. But, you know, I think anyone who works in this industry has to be well-behaved because we're, first of all, probably very grateful to get to do it and get paid to do it. And um, you have to have a, an, an element of self-motivation and, and uh, 
you know, a work ethic that perhaps is different to some other people. So I don't think there's that many naughty flute players either, except when you put a lot of them in a room together. <laughs> well, I've had a few situations at flute conventions, you know, the, the yes. artist after party kind of thing. Oh, yes. And that's yeah. The first time when I first started doing the conventions and I went and played the British one for the first time, and they hired this room in the halls of residence next door to the college, and I just walked in and I was like, I cannot believe what is going on in here. It was wild. And this is like all my heroes and you know, like <laughs> behaving in this mad way. But I had a good time. I enjoyed myself. Yeah, alcohol does a weird thing at conventions. I think alcohol and the stress or the relief of the stress yeah. being over mixed together. Because it's quite a stressful situation to stand up in front of a couple of thousand people who also play your instrument and have to perform in front of them. So the relief of it sometimes being over and a few glasses of wine and putting everyone together who feels like that, it can certainly create an unusual atmosphere. Well, Stephen, you are one of the busiest flute players. You aren't one of the nicest as well, but one of the busiest flute players I know. I mean, you look on social media and there's people like Jasmine Choi and people flying all over the place, but you take flying to a different <laughs> level, don't you? Well, I definitely collect my frequent flyer points now. Um, yeah, but I do, and it's the toughest bit of the job and also, in some ways, the best bit of the job. I'm, you know, to travel the world, and I really do mean travel the world, several times over a year, is such a privilege. And I didn't actually take advantage of it properly until about three years ago. And I've been really like working hard, I would say, on the road for about five and a half, six years now. And I was just so, kind of, it's very hard to explain, I was so slightly intimidated by the situation of having to fly and play and then fly somewhere else and play and fly somewhere else and play that you know if the hotel had good wi-fi and i would just be in the bathroom practicing like mad or calling home you know i didn't really appreciate oh my gosh i'm in beijing or oh my gosh i'm in new york or i'm in singapore or wherever and about three years ago i decided i gotta make more of this because this may not last forever and so I'm, i really started to see the world properly and i would contact my agent and i would schedule in a little rest day as we call it here or there and I wanted to see like the Great Wall of China and I wanted to see the Statue of Liberty you know I, I, one year I went to New York and lived in Times and I never saw the Statue of Liberty once. Did you get the free step on a ferry or did you actually go to it? I actually went into the lottery to get to go up to the crown oh, and got the, the thing oh. so I got to go up to the crown of the Statue of Liberty. I've been a few times now to Liberty Island and we yeah. take the ferry from Battery Park across. I don't think it's free I can't remember the now. Staten Island ferry is free. Is it? Oh Island, I'm, not, I'm not clever enough to to know that uh, so I've done it a few times but it's cool I love I love Liberty Island actually and just really to see the world and I think I've pretty much done it all now I can't think of anything I really wanted to go to Alaska I was desperate to go to Alaska and I'd never been and of course why on earth would I ever go to Alaska and I said this to my agent if anything ever comes up that's in Alaska I'd really like to go and she looked at me like I was an idiot anyway two years later they called, she called me and she's like, you're not going to believe this. I've got you a way to go to Alaska. And I was like, how? I'm thinking, you know, is there even an orchestra in Alaska? Like, can you do a Mozart concerto in Anchorage? I don't know. So she said, you can play on this cruise ship and you'll go in and you'll do a performance and the cruise ship will sail into Alaska. So there you can see Alaska. So this was, I think it was last year. It was about, about this time last year, about April, I think. So I said, absolutely, I'm going to do this. So we kind of jiggled things about and I maybe changed some things around so I could do this. Of course, I had no idea of how this was going to work. All I knew is I would be going and I was told these dates are the ones I got to keep free. So then eventually my flight tickets came in and I was flying to Tokyo. And I was like, this is not Alaska. So uh, I called up and I was like, I'm confused. My flight 
is in Tokyo and they're going to Tokyo and she was like yeah so they did some checking and basically I was flying into Tokyo joining the ship in Yokohama which is like an hour from Tokyo sailing seven days of non-stopping across the sea <laughs> to Kodiak Island which is just on the outskirts of Alaska where I was leaving the ship and then having to fly to uh, Chicago wherever it was I was going so I never really saw Alaska I just saw seven days of water but Technically, I've been in Alaska. <laughs> How many passports do you have? Because you must I have three them. passports. Well, you know, in the UK, this is different to American friends of mine. In the UK, we were allowed up to three British passports at one go. And I have three because as long as you can get... You have to fill some paperwork in and you have to get some documentation to prove why you need them. But, you know, I had big problems at first when I would have to get a visa, like a... Next week, I'm off to Vietnam, so I needed a Vietnamese visa or an Indian visa. And they take your passport away for a couple of weeks while they process it. Yet, I still have to work and I still have to travel. So, this caused problems. So, then I got my second passport, which allowed me to, uh, to travel while getting other visas. And I was quite clever about it. Because then I got my third passport, so I had three all in one go. But I have one that I just use for America. <laughs> one that I use for all the naughty countries in the world. And then one for everywhere else. Because I was having some problems... In a, with American immigration because yeah. just because they were looking through my passport and going oh my gosh why on earth have you been to the Middle East or oh my gosh why have you been there so there was a couple of situations that got a bit tense and a bit nerve-wracking so I decided to try and organize my passports a bit better so my my American working visa is in one and my Middle East ones are in another and so on I mean obviously I'm not doing anything I shouldn't be doing <laughs> just in case anyone's yeah. listening to this but it, it has made immigration in America a little bit easier yeah, I mean, because I would love to go to Iran because there's this flute, there's a flute society out there. Yeah, you know, they contacted me about um, six months ago. I had this inquiry from Iran. I wonder if we've been speaking to similar people actually. <laughs> but I think there's quite a lot of flute players. Yeah, there's there. a lot of flute players and a lot of those that are eager to learn and really struggle to get instruments and to have visiting professors and visiting. But if you went to Iran and you had that stamp in you your can, passport, is it going to cause you problems? Yeah, in the US, yeah. I once had a real situation in Kuala Lumpur. Where's that? Malaysia. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they were flicking through my passport. I was trying to leave the country. You know how you go through the immigration to yeah. leave as well sometimes. And I was at the airport trying to leave, and the guy at the little booth was saying his English wasn't great, in fairness, and he was pointing to two stamps which had Arabic writing around them. And he said, where are these from? And I was like, I have no idea. I don't speak Arabic. And it, I really didn't think I was getting out. It got problematic because I had no idea where these stamps were from. So I could see the date. Of course, I'm flicking through my iPhone calendar to try and figure out where I was at the time. It was really quite difficult. So I think if you might have an Iranian stamp, sadly, it could interfere with other things, which is a shame that the yeah, world beautiful, is Yeah, a beautiful country, some beautiful people. But you know, when I'm on Instagram and I look at my, um, my graphs of his looking, Tehran is right up there at the absolutely top. Absolutely, yeah. mine. Ah, oh, it's really interesting. It's, I think it's like the third from the top is Tehran. Yeah, so uh, it would be nice one day if we could actually go and visit yeah, some I hope of the so. players there. I hope so. Because, you know, this is one of the greatest things about being a musician, is that we can remove politics and we Absolutely. can remove all this. And we, can, we all have this incredible thing in common. And it's a shame that the world's political situation sometimes interferes with that. Oh, this is getting very deep. Well, yeah, we haven't spoken about Brexit, <laughs> don't we? Because <laughs> I think most musicians in, in the UK would be uh, we're very uh, sort of vehemently against leaving our uh, European partners. Of course partners. we are. But let's not go down that route because no. we'll probably upset some people. I know. My Instagram followers will drop like mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's talk about your Instagram because you have a very different way of doing it. You, you let people have snippets of your life, which is really interesting, and you bring them in when you're practicing, and you give lots of tips and hints. 
Well, I was a little bit late to Instagram. The reason I, I mention it now, because we were literally just talking about it before, but I was probably a little bit late to the party, if you like. I'd been on it, I think I made an account maybe three years ago and didn't post anything, certainly not fluty related, until maybe two years ago. And I was amazed at this community that's out there <laughs> that I really didn't know. Um, and I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's kind of changed the way that I think of flute playing, actually, because I... I definitely want to let people in, as you say. However, I'm also very aware that this is my career and this is important that I, I show the good sides of my career. Not my career, sorry, my life, you know, to make sure that I'm still employable and, dare I use the word, but desirable, you know. Sure. Like, so I'm not going to put something up that I think is atrocious, you know. But also I, I realised that I'm quite lucky and, and quite privileged to be in this experience where people are employing me to play the flute. And there's so many people contacting me through social media who want to have that career as well and are still studying or not even at the college stage. And so it's my responsibility really to share with them the things that I found work well and the mm -hmm. things also that maybe haven't gone so well and to learn from my own mistakes. And I think um, it's kind of like taking your responsibility as a flute player and a teacher and a performer and just opening up to a whole world of people who would never get to see that otherwise. And you do it really well. You don't, well, one thing you don't do, you don't doctor your recordings. In other words, you stick your no, phone No, I don't. You... I'm not really into the whole adding on the reverb and it take, it's, it's an honesty with what you put up. Partly, partly an honesty, I'd like to say. The truth of the matter is I just don't have the time. <laughs> I don't have the time to sit and edit. I don't know how people do. You know, the ones that amaze me and impress me to some extent are where they get these like, like sex triplets going on. You know, you get the little boxes on the yeah. screen. There's like six different people. My gosh, where do these people have the time to do that? Literally, to get to get a few things is done can take up a lot of time because my my practice is quite heavy of just learning what I got to learn for next week's work. But yeah, I'm not really one for for editing anything. But having said that, if I if I decide to stick my phone up in the practice room and record a bit, and I I don't think it was very good, it doesn't go up because. I think this, the standard has to be set high, yeah. you know, and I don't think that it's responsible to let young flute players see performance substandard and think that that's acceptable. And I don't mean that in a really like arrogant, rude, kind of cracking the whip kind of way, but the, the job that we do is tough and the standard is high and it's getting higher and higher and higher. And I think people need to realise that and realise that if you're going to be realistic about making money from playing the flute, there is a standard that you have to meet. Um, and I constantly practice to make sure I do meet that standard. So when I don't quite meet it, it's not going up. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I just want to take you back years and years and years. The first time I met you in Edinburgh. In Edinburgh, I remember this. You were at the you were at the music college. I was. I was in about second or third year, maybe. You were, and I was with Yamamoto San. That's right. Japanese right. Uh, friend, and they had just launched the uh, Broger system, they and they were having a big party for it. Yeah. We had, and you were you were playing, and you were playing an Ian Clark piece, and I can't remember which one it was. It was Orange Dawn. Was it? And it was. Stunning. Oh, now, Yamamoto-san was, he spends his life, he used to be retired now, but he used to spend his life listening to flute players. And there was the odd one that you would think, you would know that you got to him because he closed his eyes. Oh, he did? He oh, just that's very sweet. He closed his eyes and listened. And it's very rarely I actually saw him close his eyes and listen. Certainly when it came to contemporary, because most of Ian's music has that contemporary vibe. Sure. Beauty, but it's contemporary. And he was more of a sort of a love the classical. Yeah, absolutely. But that one day... I saw him close his eyes when he listened to me. Oh, that's very sweet. And it was stunning. 
Thank you. You know, I remember that day because that was my first kind of, um, like, not welcome into the world, but kind of exposure to the, the way that the performing world meets the industry. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And that's the big part of what I do now. I'm constantly traveling around and doing classes or playing at conventions or meeting makers or, or product testing, whatever. And I didn't know this kind of thing existed, you know. And even the contacts I made in that two or three hours that day, like you, have, have lasted a long time and everyone's positions and jobs and careers have changed. Yet we still all work together in various ways. And it's very interesting. And I say this to my students, you know. Be nice to everybody you meet. Even the ones who are the biggest pain in the ass you've yes. ever met. Be nice to them because one day you might work with them or you even worse you might have to audition and they're on the panel so don't irritate anybody if you can but um it's like difference you're still looking young you still got dark oh, hair. i don't know if i'm that young i'm gray you I'm look gray. exactly the same jp i've got i've got a beard now it's a high beard. oh yeah you do have the you didn't have the beard that's right it's supposed to be trimmed isn't it the beard yeah does it interfere with playing the flute oh i don't know i always wonder this like if you look at I mean, all the real famous flute players, did they all have beards? Well, if you look at them, Jimmy's got his, Michael Cox is a huge fan. Well, you know, I had this really funny chat with Mike about a year ago. I actually saw him at the Galway Festival and I had taken some lessons with Mike. Actually, a load he, he studied, I studied with him for postgrad half the time. And he didn't have this big moustache back then. He used to have this little tiny little yeah. goatee beard, little tiny pointy thing. Now he has this massive, like, whirly moustache. And I was just sitting having a drink with him. And I said, I hope you don't mind me asking you this, but does it interfere? And he laughed because he's like, I get asked this every day of my life. And he said, no, it never interferes with playing, but it does interfere with teaching. So sometimes when I'm teaching and I have to lift it up so that the student can see what's going on. And I thought this is hysterical. See the shape of the top lip. Yeah, but he literally like, he sticks his hand underneath it and like lifts it up as if it's like opening a door or a window and then you can finally see his, his lips. Michael Cox, one of the greatest ever orchestral players. One of the greatest heard. flute players, oh. in my opinion. He can do things on the flute that nobody else can. I mean, it's like, it is remarkable. A very humble, doesn't push himself. He's Lovely just man. A wonderful, Michael Cox, everybody. Honestly, it amazes me that people outside the UK don't necessarily know the name yeah. as well. I think he's quite famous in Australia now. Fam famous is kind of the wrong word. I know we're talking about flute players, yeah. but you know what I mean? But if I go to the States, to the US, and I'm talking to flute players, they don't know who he is. Because he's so busy over here. I mean, he doesn't tour like the real big soloists, but he's right up there, if not better in some ways. And I had the most incredible education from him. Flute lessons from him were fantastic. And there was no ego involved. Mm -hmm. you, you know, he was a very humble, honest guy. And he definitely was one of these teachers with the, the mentality of my job as a teacher is to make sure that you get better. Yeah, he's one of those unknown greats, but like Stuart McElwain on the piccolo. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of great players out there who maybe aren't as well known as they should be. But I don't mean that rudely because they're probably very content and they're incredibly busy and having hugely successful careers. And again, this is the thing about, you know, the, the, the world that we work in because I see lots of people with enormous online presences, but I don't meet them at concerts or festivals. You know, they're, they're spending a lot of time making their online presence successful and that's impressive. Mm -hmm. But... How do they make an income? I don't know necessarily. And then the other side is there are these incredible flute players who can do things that people would not even believe. You know, like really incredible things, yeah. yet have no presence outside their job in the orchestra or their job 
in the country that they perform in. We've got to think, all we've got to do is think of Dennis Burekhoff, who doesn't do anything. I mean, yeah. one of the greatest flute players alive that technically can do stuff that is unknown. Oh, did you see his Tchaikovsky? Oh, that, oh, that oh, it was just that one bit, and I just thought, how do you even do that? Like on the low, the low yeah. notes, it's insane. YouTube video, isn't it? It's just, I think Aaron, his wife, put it up, but absolutely fantastic. So what drove you to the flute? Because you're a Scottish boy, right? Yeah, I'm from Glasgow originally, but my accent is a little more refined it's now, possible. shall we say. Because I spend most of my time working with Americans who refuse to understand what I say, <laughs> and years of it now have drilled me into speaking like this. And when I go home to Scotland, my friends and family laugh about my accent because they call me a nomad because I'm, I don't have any accent now. It's like a hint of Scottish American kind of thing. Anyway, about there's a YouTube video of me when I was studying in Scotland. I think I'm playing like pie in the face polka or something, I forget. And I speak for about 25 seconds at the beginning and it's like 15 years old. Somebody sent me this recording about six months ago and I listened to it. I could not believe my accent. It's so Glaswegian. I had no idea my accent has really changed. Give, give me an example. I would go like, hello, my name is Stephen Clark. But this is like, hello, my name is... <laughs> it was like really Glaswegian and rough. And I was like, I couldn't... I wasn't interested in the flute playing. I just could not believe that. They're right, my accent has changed enormously over the last like 15 years. But anyway, this is totally going off course. So yeah, I, I, I'm from what Glasgow. What made you choose the flute? Well, at school, we... Um, we had to choose certain subjects, you know, because the education system is different it in is, Scotland yeah. to England. So I think we have to make choices a little bit earlier in Scotland than in, in England. So I was about maybe 12, 13, something like that. And I had a choice between PE, Ooh, definitely not going to happen. I did not want to do that. Um, home economics, which was like <laughs> cooking and stuff. Um, craft and design, which was art and craft and stuff was my most hated subject because I hated it. Or music. That was the four choices. So I took music. And I decided I'd learn the saxophone. So I got a saxophone out of the school cupboard, big old mouldy thing. Went off to the saxophone teacher who sat in the room smoking the whole time, this <laughs> tiny little room. And I absolutely cannot stand like smoking. It's still to this day, I, I've never tried a cigarette in my life. It's almost like a phobia, I really hate it. And I just remember as like a 12, 13 year old kid being so horrified that this guy was smoking. That, I, that was it. I was never going back for another lesson. So the only other option was a, a flute in the cupboard. So I took the flute. Went for a, about maybe half a term's worth of lessons of the school flute teacher. Could not be bothered. Was not remotely interested. And that was that. And gave it up. And then it wasn't until the next year of doing this music course, standard grade as we call it. It was kind of like the equivalent of GCSE, but a little bit easier. And, you know, I had to have an instrument. I had to do some kind of performance. So I was decided, well, I had a flute that I'd never returned back to the school. So I found a local flute teacher. My mum and dad found me a local flute teacher, a lady called Sheena Gordon. Really? Yeah. Oh, who yeah. Had, was the retired second flute player from the Scottish Chamber yes. Orchestra. Now, I knew nothing about this. She was just a lady that lived down the road. So off I went to possibly the most successful flute teacher that Scotland has yes. ever produced, <laughs> having no clue who she was. And, I mean, that was it. Like, she was incredible. Just to, just to inspire you to want to play. And that's what all her students talk about. I mean, she's still doing it. She's still teaching loads of Well, them. that's the key to learning any instrument. You've got to, well, learning anything, you've got to be inspired, haven't you? Definitely. You can be directed as a parent. You can direct your child. You will go to play piano lessons. Mm -hmm. You will go and do sport. But unless it comes from inside, unless that drive, you've got to be motivated. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, the, a big thing for me was when she told me to get a book... Because I wasn't really, you know, I was learning off a book called Learn As You Play by Peter Wastel, which is not the most inspiring of books, actually. Right. So Sheena was working hard, I think, to make it interesting. And then eventually I got 
to the, a point where I could play enough tunes that I was getting a bit more interested. And she told me to get a book by a guy I'd never heard of called James Galway. And it was a book called Showpieces? Songs for Annie. Oh, Songs for Annie. Songs for Annie. And I, I remember getting this book through and this guy with a funny beard on the front and he had this gold flute in the picture and I'd never seen a gold flute. So of course I was asking, this is before internet, of course. <laughs> so I'm asking Sheena about this and she's like, oh yeah, he had a gold flute. And, you know, she told me all this stuff. I couldn't believe it. Anyway, then my mum and dad bought me a CD from Tower Records when Tower Records was still going, oh, Sir J well, he wasn't Sir at the time, James Galway playing all the tunes from Songs for Annie. And I was amazed by the very last track, which was Carmen Fantasy. Like, I'd never heard yes. this before. You know, I'm playing like, you know, two notes a bar kind of thing. Suddenly, I just had never heard so many notes in all my life. And I just remember being obsessive from that point. Obsessive. Like, it became my life. So that was the hook. Absolutely. But even weirder in the story is I didn't know you could become a professional flute player. So although my whole life was revolved around practicing the flute and playing the flute and singing in youth orchestra and wind band at school and anything I could, I was aiming to be a vet. <laughs> I was taking all the science subjects and I actually got to the point where I was about to apply for, for university. And our school had this funny situation called um, like a careers guidance kind of service. So you went in and you sat this exam which was very peculiar and you would like, it would ask you to draw the letter S 20 times backwards and then they would tell you you're suited to be an air traffic controller. <laughs> you know, like it was something like this. So um, I went in and did one of these tests and then I had to have an interview based on the results of my test. And it just so happened that my interviewer happened to be my form tutor, which was also my chemistry teacher at school. Um, and she didn't even know I wanted to be a vet. She just assumed I was going to be a flute player. So I went into this interview and she went, oh, this will be a quick one. Here's the syllabus for the conservatoire in Scotland. I'd never heard of it. And then I looked through it and for the Bachelor of Music and Performance course it said, this course is designed for students with outstanding potential in performance. And I thought, that's what I want to do with my life. I just also want to add, because I don't know if this is important, I then took my college auditions and I got rejected from everywhere twice. And people don't realise this, because they think, oh, you're one of the ones who made yeah. it. No, no, I got rejected from everywhere twice. So I went up to university and did an academic music degree for two years, which I hated every second of. And then it was only my third attempt to college, I got in on a reserve offer to one place in Scotland. Everywhere else rejected me again. So then I went, I went through, I was quite behind. And even I realised this when I went to college. And I studied with initially David Nicholson, who was Sheena Gordon's principal yes. flute. So it was a great way to take over. He's sadly no longer with us. But he was fantastic because he'd studied with Rampal and all yeah. these great people. Knew the orchestral repertoire inside out. But more than anything, allowed his students to sound like themselves. Nobody sounded like him. He had a very unique sound, actually. And, but we didn't sound like that. I still sounded with my sound, he just made it better. You know what I mean? And he gave me this incredible grounding. I mean, there was some tense moments, I'm not gonna lie, but after I graduated, we stayed in touch. I, I worked with him several times. Like, I really only had good things to say about him. But when I became to po for post-grad applications, I said to myself, I wanted to study with Mike, you see. Yes. Mike was teaching at the Royal Academy, or the Royal Northern College, and I said, I'm only applying to those two schools, and if I don't get a scholarship, I'm not going, I'm done. Because I, I knew I was struggling, you know, sure. and luckily I got a scholarship to RMCM, so I continued and that was fine. But talking about Sir James, when I was 29, I decided I wanted to go study with him, even though I was working. Yeah. And all my friends and colleagues said I was mad. So I did. I went and became a student of his, and it was the best thing I ever did. Because, first of all, see to stand in front of your hero and the man that <laughs> really got you involved and actually just to say thank you so much you don't I mean of course, he doesn't know he knows because he hears it every day yes. oh I play the flute because of you but actually 
to sit and have like a private moment, like a drink with them after a concert or, you know, like have lunch with them. It's such an incredible experience to just say, thank you so much. You literally changed my life. And I had a few really lovely chats with him over the years where he's such a nice man. Like, he, he is just a normal guy when you take the flute out of his hand, you know. And we have, I really enjoy his company. And him and his wife have been so supportive and helpful to me over the, the last few years when I'm really getting this solo career going. Because um, when, when I was playing orchestrally, you know, that was the goal. And then I left and everybody said, well, that's insanity to, to, to be a, Don't to be a soloist. Yeah, yeah, it just wasn't really for me. And in some ways they were right, but you know, it's, it's been a, a tough job. But I've had some great lessons because he doesn't teach in a way that, you know, I don't hear him talk about embouchure or where the tongue has to be positioned or anything like that. He talks about his experience of being a flute player and he says, you know, he has played every piece, every concerto with every major orchestra and every major concert in the world. He knows what he's talking about. And there's been moments where you'll play to him. Like, I had this great lesson once on um, D major, Mozart D major. And I don't really remember much about it, except we got to the third movement. And I started off, dun, 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 dun. and he said, oh, see when you do this with the orchestra? I mean, there was no orchestra there. It's just me and a piano player. He said, next time you play this with an orchestra, tell the, the first violins to do that as an up bow. And I was like... All right, never thought much about it. I don't know, a month later I was playing it. I said to the conductor, I quite like this as an upbow. My gosh, transformed everything because suddenly the violins didn't rush anymore. Yeah. Because of you course. know, in, in Europe, when they sit the first violins across from the second yeah. violins, there's that little bit where they, they play off against each other. And so they're always rushing, it's always getting faster. And I always thought it was just me not being very good, you know. He's just got these like little nuggets of information from pure, incredible amounts of experience where uh, he can make your life, first of all, so much easier, but most importantly, a much more successful performance as a result. So I have learned bucket loads from, from Galway. Like, I can't even tell you how much, but in, in a very different way to how my flute lessons were when I was at college. And you know, most of his students, if not all of them, because the standard in his flute class now is just insanely high, they're all principal flute players in orchestras yes. around the world. They can play the flute, do you know what I mean? We know how to play the flute. But he just has this way of listening. And there's times where I'm playing. I remember taking a lesson once off with him on the Mouquet flute de pan. I love this piece. Yes, I play it a lot. And he has the best recording, in my opinion. So I thought, I'll play this to him. I know it's not the hardest piece in the world, but I'll play it to him. And I was playing something in the first movement, and he said, no, nah, it's too slow. I mean, he, he works it nicer than this. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, I don't agree with him. But there's a lot of people watching this. So I'll just humour him, and I shall play it faster for the, the situation. And... As soon as I get back to playing in concert, I'll just go back to how I do it. And I did. And then I listened to the recording of the lesson, and he was absolutely right. 100% right. It has to be faster. And it's only when, when I listened back to it, I realised he was completely right. Because we don't hear what we, want, what we should hear. We hear what we want to hear yes, a lot of the time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I say this a lot to every time I give a class. You must record yourself. And this is why I think standards are getting higher as well. Because in my day, first of all, YouTube and Spotify and all these things didn't exist. I'm 35. So when I was at college, if I wanted to hear a Mozart flute concerto or, you know, Bruckner 4 that I had to play in college orchestra, I went to the library and I took out the LP or the CD if it was available. And when you had a whole orchestra trying to learn the same thing, quite often it wasn't available. Um, nowadays you don't do that. You literally unlock your phone and it's there within 25 seconds. Also, my phone was a Nokia 3210 or something at college, which was exciting because it had Snake. Do you remember oh, yeah, Snake? There was no such thing as cameras and, and video cameras on phones. Nowadays you can whack your phone 
on the music stand and you can play your La Premi and you can listen back to it immediately. I used to have a mini disc player at college, you know? Yeah. And that's why I'd have this little microphone that plugged in and stuff. It was a right pain in the, the backside. And I think people are listening more to themselves and they are more exposed to incredible music making and standards, of course, are going to get higher and higher. So would you recommend people actually, as long as the teacher was okay about it, recorded their lessons so yeah. they could go back to it? I think literally every single student that comes to me records their flute lesson. And also I do a bit of online teaching, not much, um, through Play With A Pro. They have me as one of their teachers. And it's quite interesting because it automatically records for the student and they get sent the copy of it. I don't. <laughs> But the student gets sent the copy of our lesson. See, that's so important because you have a reference point to go back to. Yeah, but I would say like nine times out of ten when someone comes to me for a flute lesson, they always record it. The only students that don't record it are the ones who are actually my students, and there's only three of them, you know, who, who come sure. to me on a once-a-month basis. I maybe teach like five, six lessons a month to, as like, I don't want to call it a consultation lesson because I'm not consulting, I'm genuinely there to help them. But I know it's maybe a one-off or a once-a-year kind of thing. And they all record it. And that's fine, you obviously just can't swear. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I talk a lot as well about listening as a flute player. And this is something that I'm so bothered about at the moment because we work in an industry, and I hope this isn't too deep and dark, but I, it is important. We work in an industry as musicians that is really fueled by paranoia and competitive paranoia. Yeah. Because we all work so hard, we want to achieve. and. There are very few jobs and very few concert opportunities for a huge amount of flute players. And I find it's very hard for players of all ages, not just young players, or people who are not, you know, who are in the industry already in a full-time orchestral job, teaching full-time, doing a bit of everything, you know, or even students or pre-students, you know. It's very hard for them to go and listen to other flute players and enjoy it. Because they're looking for the fault. Absolutely, yeah. They're looking for the fault. They make the decision before they go in as to whether they're going to hate it and actually also whether they're going to like it. If it's their favourite flute player, they can get away with murder and they yes. can literally, they're going to love it. And I realised I was quite guilty of this and I was going in and I was looking for the fault and I was finding it almost every time because no live performance is perfect. And then I was coming out and I was either jealous or frustrated or depressed because I couldn't play to the standard. It wasn't doing me any any positive favours at all. So I really decided this had to be sorted because it was getting to a point where I was actually starting to hate the flute and starting to hate music making, especially when your whole life is just surrounded by it all the time. So I'd started to think about it and I talk a lot now in class and to my students about two forms of listening and I've named them and you have to just bear with me. The first is called teacher listening and the second is called granny listening. Teacher listening I don't use as often as you think. Teacher listening is when someone comes to me for a flute lesson. They come to me and they're paying for me to help them get better, for me to help them make progress and improve. And that is my job, to listen critically, to analyse what can be better to make their performance more successful or their technique more solid, etc, etc. That is teacher listening. If I ever go to listen to a concert or a, or a, or a performance that I'm not involved in, I don't want to listen like that. I switch on my granny listening. Now, when you're a kid and you play your school concerts, you can literally stand on that stage and annihilate it. You can literally <laughs> yes. destroy every single note that's on the page and your granny will still think it's the greatest thing she has ever heard. And to be able to switch that mentality on when you're in the audience is the most beneficial thing I have ever I love been able to do as a flute player. So that whenever I go to see a flute player of any age, any standard, I come away finding something inspiring or 
fun about it, you know, you lose the joy otherwise. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of flute players all the time and it means I'm, I'm not walking away thinking, oh, that was rubbish or I could do better or they were way better than me and I've got a lot of work to do. I come away going, my gosh, I love being a flute player. I love the fact that we can make music and I love this community where we're playing an instrument that there are millions of us around the world who all share the same enjoyment out of it. And I think it's so dangerous to not be able to listen like that. And I meet people all the time who can't do it, who absolutely have no ability to find pleasure out of someone else's music. I just love that granny listening. I once it makes did, sense though, right? I once, I once did the Eva and my granny stood up at the end of the first <laughs> movement and waved. Do you know, I have this joke. You waved at me before the middle movement started. I have a joke that I tell on stage, like at least once a week in, in concerts where, um, you can spot my mum and dad in my audiences. Not that they come very often because I get kind of stressed when they're in the audience. But my mum will be sitting like clapping all the wrong moments and telling everyone around her that I'm her son. And my dad will be right beside her, totally fast asleep. So this is a joke I tell. And I'm desperate for the day where my mum and dad come into the audience so I can tell this joke. Because American audiences love that joke in particular. Because it makes you relatable, I guess, doesn't it? But it's actually kind of true as well. You know, that is my family. They're not musicians at all. They have no idea. You know, they think this is the weirdest job in the world. But do you know, I've learned, I will learn a lot from this podcast, but the two things I'm going to take away are teacher listening and granny listening, because I'm as guilty as anybody going to something and thinking, that was really good, but... All's about. Yeah, I don't like that, because as you say, you should go and just appreciate what's You there. know, the, the, I have to deal with this a lot because it's how I make my, my job, but there's a lot of people that are not on my side before I walk on that stage. And they'll never be on my side, and I just have to accept that. So why do they turn up? Because you feel you should. You know, if a flute player comes to town, you feel you should. Now, this is a minority. I have to say, I'm not meaning this to sound very dark and negative. Um, Most people are there for a good time, and actually, country to country, it's totally different as to the experience on stage. But the people that... And I think this is so important for anyone who's got concerts coming up, or recitals, juries, exams, whatever. The people in the audience who are not on your side will never be on your side. Don't waste your energy on them. Absolutely. Obviously, commit the concert to them and do your best, but don't worry about their opinion because you're never going to win. It's everyone else who actually wants a good time and wants a musical experience of value. They're the ones to to put your energy towards. They're the ones to worry about and to make sure that they're looked after from a performer to an audience perspective. It's quite hard to put into words. I, I don't know if I'm explaining it You're really explaining, well. I'm sure everyone that's listening will, have, will know exactly what you mean. Um, but you know, the, when I started to learn these things, it kind of was like unlocking a, a new side to my music making. You then become free. Totally free, free that's the judgment. Word. You become free of, of anything that is gonna be a, a critical mass weighing on your shoulder. Yeah, and you know, anyone that gets on stage, however, accomplished or unaccomplished if that's the word they are all you can do is respect them because it takes real balls it really does there are times where I'm standing backstage and I'm thinking what on earth am I doing this for but you do because as musicians we have this underlying love of music and you know we are musicians who play the flute not flute players who play music and if you are a flute player who plays music that's a dangerous position to be in absolutely especially with our repertoire (laughs) where it isn't the most extensive or fascinating repertoire in the world but you've got to love it. You've got to love every second of being a musician and therefore take an enormous interest in getting your playing better so that that is your tool to communicate your music. Well, I, will dis- I would describe a flute player who plays music and the- I would delineate the difference between that and a musician. 
that plays a flute and the totally. musician that plays the flute can make the hairs on the back of my neck yes. stand up the flute player who plays music the one that plays lots of notes and does nothing for me emotionally yeah. definitely but I think it's all tied in as well to being able to not be paranoid <laughs> and not being overly judgmental of other people yeah. yes of course on yourself be as judgmental as you like on yourself although in the practice room yes. when you walk out on that stage you have to not be judgmental of yourself or you'll end up hating every second of it you just got to enjoy it. You got to find something about it you like. In case I'm in danger of you being judgmental of me, do you fancy going for a quick bit of lunch? I'd love to. I'm starving. And we can I'm come. always hungry. Shall we? Yeah. Should we have a glass or something? No, sure, it's a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Should we be good and have fizzy water? Well, we'll see. I, I do have my car parked at the station. Uh, but yeah. it's still a few hours away before I'll be going home. I'm off to a jazz club tonight. So oh, yeah. 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 Oh, you could really have a good life, JP, don't you? <laughs> Let's go. Okay. Yeah, we've moved. We've moved into a... This is going to sound a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> Turkish tapas. I have no idea what to expect, and it's really good. <laughs> yeah, what's in front of us? piece of cod. I don't actually know what this is. What do you think the green thing is? Do you think it's aubergine? Or is it cabbage? Oh yeah, there's aubergine in the middle. Look, you can see it around this side. Or is it cabbage? It's stuffed with aubergine. <laughs> And it looks like there's um, onions, I think. Onion stuff on the top. I'm quite stuffed. You might have to finish this one. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> you think about the gym later, aren't you? You did the London Marathon, didn't you? No, I did the Birmingham Marathon. Oh, did you? This is something, actually. The, the first, I hadn't seen you for quite a few years. And then we went for lunch one day, just around the corner from here. Yes. About two years ago, maybe. And I was just training for the marathon. And this is where I learned about all your history as, a, as a runner. You, yeah. Like People probably don't know that about you. No. And you're like we're a serious, serious athlete. Yeah, I was an international, I was an international runner. So that and you gave me loads of advice about my mental state of running that horrific four and a half hours of hell. Because it's great, isn't it? And then you just reach a certain point. And then you've got to go through that certain point. Well, do you know, thank you. You know, uh, when I turned 30, I made a list of 30 things in life I wanted to do. Yeah. Lots of them were like flute related or music related, some were travel related, and there was run a marathon just once in my life, and I, it was the one I didn't want to do, because once, once I'd committed to this list as well, and then um, I thought, I've got to get on with this and do it, so I started, and I was never run in my life, like I maybe did like 15 minutes on the treadmill in the gym, but running on a treadmill is also very different to running on, on real ground, it's much harder on real ground, um, so... I uh, started to run, and then eventually I got to the point where I was like comfortably doing 10 kilometers. I mean, bear in mind a marathon, I think it's 44 kilometers, it's quite a difference, 42 kilometers, yeah. So um, then I did my first half marathon and really enjoyed it. I see my first half marathon, my only half marathon, and really enjoyed it. And then eventually I did the marathon, and I, because of the crazy life with work that I have, I had to do the marathon that I was available for. So. I actually entered London Marathon and didn't get a place because it's very hard to get a place and I didn't want to do it for a charity because I don't think other people should have to pay money and donate just because it's something that I want to do so I deliberately just wanted to do it I've tried now for the London Marathon three times and never ever been accepted anyway so I could do the Birmingham Marathon the very first Birmingham Marathon that's ever been the only Birmingham Marathon that's ever been it was dreadful it was all uphill and looping bits it was absolutely awful not a single record was broken on that day not a single one and I remember crossing the finishing line and I never had the moment of of like pure exhilaration that I was expecting I just had this like thank god that's over 
<laughs> and it's only like a, about a month later I, I took my bib you know my numbered yeah. bib on the front that was like wrecked and like all destroyed from sweat and I sent it off to this company and they it was really cool and they framed the bib and my medal and a, a map of the course in this really nice frame that's on my wall in my music room at home and it was only once that arrived in the mail and I looked at it and thought oh my gosh I did that I actually ran a marathon but I did apply for London again this year I just want to do London once yeah, London's great. How many times have you done it? I did London once. It was the second one they did. I heard it's a really fun one because the crowd are there the whole oh, way. Oh, it's fabulous. And there's a weird bit when you go through the city towards the end. But when you start, when you run across the cobbles, that's a bit weird as oh, well. You have to, so it's not all in good ground? No, not all of it. Most of it. And then you come to the cobbles round by um, Tower of London. But the weird bit is when you when you're doing the when you reach half and you go across Tower Bridge, there's people still going underneath that haven't got as far as you. Oh really? Yeah. So when you come back, there's still people that's not even halfway. Oh, that's slightly depressing if you're the person that's not even halfway and you're seeing everyone finish. <laughs> so, no, it's it's wonderful and the, the support. I mean, the support you get around this. I think it's like something that I don't want to say everyone should do once in their life, but you know, to the the achievement that you have to. Achievement's not the right word, but the progress that you have to make Absolutely. is so amazing because you can see it. You can there's suddenly a day, you know, the, when I followed my training plan, which was kind of sporadic because I'm not at home all the time, you know. But the longest run you had to do in the training plan was 20 miles, no more. And then they say the next six and a bit miles, and that bit is important. Uh, you know, it's done on pure adrenaline. My my practice routine as a flute player is really what created my running training plan actually you know because I, I I'm obsessed about what the Americans call chunking yeah we don't really have this word in the UK no, I think I, British players know your I'm a big chunker so chunking is when you I mean you it literally is what it says you're splitting the, the thing that you're learning the piece of music you're learning into little chunks I mean they're really small some of them sometimes yeah. it's like half a half a bar half a measure mm -hmm. sometimes it's a whole line it depends but I like if you look at any of my etudes because I'm obsessed about etudes, absolutely obsessed with them. Really, I didn't know that. <laughs> Everyone knows my obsession with the studies. But you know, I have all these lines. Like you, the pages just split into hundreds of them, and it's all just about adding on a little bit more, just making that little bit more progress. So day one, you practice the first two bars and get them good. Day two, you practice the first two bars and get them good again, and then the next bar. You know, you just keep building it, building it, building it. It was the same with running. You know, you went out and you ran two miles and the next day you'd run two miles again then the next day you might go for two and a half miles and once you've got comfortable with that you then you just kept adding on adding on adding on and suddenly you're at 20 miles i chunked it i chunked my running you know what i mean it's the same mental process and just when you're you're at the point where you think you can't do it anymore you can you've got that tiny tiny bit more fuel that tiny tiny bit more power left just to get to where you need to be you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Of course you do. You're like a pro at this. But that's how, as a complete amateur runner, that's how it was to me. It was such a mental game. Yeah, no, in my head, because my best is 2.16. Two hours 16. I was double your time. <laughs> I, you literally ran at double the speed yeah, that I Yeah, but it doesn't correlate to my half. My best half was 63.40. That's unbelievable. But the, do you know, this is something actually that amazed me, because when you run these things, there's the elite runners, like people like you who run at the before me, you know? And when I was doing my half marathon, I remember like, <laughs> you know, like toddling up the road, having a nice old time, watching the crowd. And on the other side of the road were the elite runners coming in to finish. And they were running faster at like mile 13 than I could if I sprinted full speed. Like it was 
unbelievable. I remember just the whole load of runners in my group were just like astounded at the speed that these guys were running at. But with a race, there is absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind who got there faster, you know? Yeah, I mean, you could have a, a flute race doing a piece of music. That's interesting. I wonder why no one's ever had like a speed flute thing, like a really proper one, you know, like where it's a set piece, everyone has to play a G major scale. You, you know what I mean? Like it's an interesting concept to see who is the fastest flute player in the world. Not necessarily the best flute player or the best musician, but who can actually play that particular thing. The, you know what I mean? Could we ban Dennis? Yeah, he's not allowed. He's definitely Dennis not allowed. Dennis he's not allowed on this one. It's curious. It's a curious thought, isn't it? Why we've never done that. Yeah, but no, I would agree with you. Music is very different, is that you may not necessarily be technically classed amongst your peers as the, as the best in the world, but if you move one person in that audience, that's all that matters. That is all that matters. I actually notice a real difference going from country to country, playing concerts and giving masterclasses and all this stuff. There is definitely a difference in technical capabilities from country to country yeah. as well. Like America are in some ways light years ahead. They just have the most phenomenal techniques. Most of the time, I mean, there's exceptional circumstances. But if I'm to be really honest, and I hope I don't offend people by saying this, if there was any country in the world where I would feel there is a general style of playing that touches me the least, it would be the US as well. This isn't to say that there's some incredible musicians, and there are, who really like can move me when they play. But I hear a lot of playing in America that's very, very technical, but that's kind of where it ends. Whereas when you come to the UK, I think it's the complete opposite. None of us have any technique whatsoever, but we really pour our heart into it. So the, the players that really go on to do great things are the ones who have the technique to allow them to to have something to say. You know, it's, it's another thing, I always think about the halls that we play in because certain flute players are playing in different halls to the to other flute players and so you have to play in a different way. Um, and you know, Sir James sells out the biggest concerts in the world. Most of us don't, we're playing in smaller venues. So I don't have to play in the same way that he does. Um, I mean, I have nothing really like substantial to talk about other than it's interesting to me. I find this an interesting thing to look at someone's playing and, and see that they're playing in a way because of their experience and because of the, um, the surroundings that they're used to playing in. Well, that's the thing, you have to, you have to modify or morph your you really do, actually. surroundings. Yeah. You really do. And there's nothing worse than playing in a really rubbish venue or a really dry acoustic. And I think the trick I've learned not that it's easy to do, but it's to work a lot less than you think you have to. Oh, no, not push it if you're going to join. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite guilty for pushing anyway. Uh, so i got to, like, always say to myself, trust that they can hear you. Trust that what you're trying to do is actually coming across. I had this strange experience in Paris the other day. It was very... It felt like the sound was going nowhere on the stage, but apparently to the audience it's like the most perfect acoustic in the world and I also couldn't see a single person because the lights were so dim in the house and I honestly felt like I was standing in a little room just playing to myself it was very strange uh, and then you just get reminded every so often there's people watching when they clap or they cough or they sneeze or they go out for a pee or something so Stephen I could sit here and talk to you all day sorry I do talk a lot I'm sorry I find you fascinating and you, you do talk a lot and it's great because I'm learning stuff all the time um, Thank you for taking your time out this week. Hey, thanks for having me. And it's really, really sweet. And we will have to catch up. You're such a busy Hector, but we will have to catch up again soon because uh, I know I get a lot of feedback from here these things, these uh, podcasts. And 
I know we'll get a lot coming back. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot of questions. Okay, well, I'll answer anything anyone Certainly wants they want to, to hear know. some of the stories that you have. <laughs> you know some of the stories, I'm sure, of it, what, uh, what goes on. Yeah, most of them can't be repeated. Yes, absolutely. Oh, Steve, before I go, where can people find you? Um, so I have a new website as of yesterday, www.stephenclarkflute.com. Stephen with a PH, Clark with no E, just to confuse everyone, stephenclarkflute.com. I am now an Instagrammer, which I'm loving, which is Stephen Clark Flute. And I'm also on Twitter, which is Stephen Flute. That's how long. I was on Twitter years ago. I managed to get Stephen Flute. But now somebody has Stephen Flute on Instagram. And uh, I really want it. <laughs> but I can't get it. So I'm Stephen Clark Flute on Instagram. And that's actually where I post the most is Instagram. I'm loving Instagram. It's good fun. Do you want my, do you want my Twitter handle? I know what your Twitter handle is because we follow each other. Go on, tell them. Flute. So you must have been like the first person to get it. 2007. And was anyone else even on Twitter back then? Probably not. <laughs> you know, I didn't get Facebook because I actually don't have an artist Facebook. I have like a personal Facebook that's um, that's locked away and hidden. And I have this rule that I, you, you don't get on my Facebook unless I've met you in real life. Because actually it's so time consuming doing all these things. And recently I thought, do I need an artist Facebook? And I put a poll on my Instagram and overwhelmingly said, no, I don't need an artist artist Facebook so for now I just I'm just keeping it to Instagram and Twitter and can people buy your album your CD yeah there's a couple of albums out uh, you can buy them on all the usual places you can actually buy them I think through my website eventually once that's all up and going but you can get them in some I mean I would say record stores I don't know if they exist anymore but also you can get them on iTunes Apple Music Google Play Spotify all of them like it's on all of them Fantastic. And the reason I want to speak to you again is I want to talk about your journey on choosing your new gold flute because you've gone down a route which is buying the flute that you want. I have. For the first time in my life. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I spent a long time, two years. You have. And you've been courted by every major manufacturer. But you've put that out of your head and you've gone for the thing that has moved you. Yeah. And you know... I, I said this a lot online and it's become a joke and I'm certainly not the first person to say it you know the one chooses the wizard yes and my gosh did that flute choose me I knew within 20 seconds I really did and I think that this is a good learning experience for all our listeners is choose the flute that you fall in love with almost ignore the brand name and choose the flute and I would like to cover that your journey yeah I'd love to talk about that because it's, it's been a big learning experience for me as well as a flute player as a musician and also as um, just a professional in general having to deal with companies enticing you and all this kind of thing you know what I'm getting at it's been a really interesting thing and actually I'm I think I'm at a stage now where I'm quite comfortable to talk about it openly as well so we should definitely have a chat sometime fantastic thank you again for your time my pleasure and by the way we didn't drink anything did we no we've had only non-alcoholic drinks fizzy water the day is yet young Wow, yeah, let's go. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, JP.
Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.